Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the aquarium. It's good to see all of you who are here in, in person. And I want to welcome all of those who are watching remotely. I'd like to start by thanking our sponsors, Gazette Newspapers and the Courtyard Marriott downtown. <coughs> and for those of you in the theater, if you would silence your cell phones, please, and refrain from texting or tweeting for the next hour, we would appreciate it. Tonight, I'm very pleased to welcome attorney James Genswaldi, who will discuss current approaches to animal care at zoos, aquariums, and wildlife parks. And the topic, the title of his talk is Shifting from Being Right to Doing Right for Animals. He's a lawyer from the East Coast. You can tell he's from the East Coast and that he's a lawyer by the suit he's wearing. Uh, <laughs> out here, we don't wear suits, Jim. Jeswaldi is an animal attorney based on Long Island, New York. He's the author of the book, Excellence Beyond Compliance, Enhancing Animal Welfare Through the Constructive Use of the Animal Welfare Act. Great book, and I'm sure he will be happy to autograph one if you want to get one after his talk. He writes a column regularly for the San Diego Zoo Global Academy. Uh, it's a, their e-newsletter, and his column is always on the continuous improvement in animal welfare. He's been a law professor at Hofstra University on Long Island. He's the founding member and has served as chair as on the New York State Bar Association Committee on Animals and the Law, founding co-chair of the Suffolk County Bar Association's Animal Law Committee, and vice chair of the American Bar Association's tort trial and insurance practice section for Animal Law Committee. Got his bachelor's degree from Lawrence University, master's degree in political science from Stony Brook University on Long Island, and his JD degree from Hofstra University School of Law. And when he was getting his uh, JD degree, he served as the notes and comments editor of the Hofstra Law Review. In 2018, he was the inaugural recipient of the New York State Bar Association Committee on Animals and the Law's Exemplary Service Award. It's a pleasure to welcome back a friend of longstanding, James Jeswaldi. Thank you very much, Jerry. I'm going to try to move around a little bit here, but try not to um, get in your way. I'm very happy to be here tonight. I thank all of you for coming out, or for those of you who are viewing uh, remotely. Um, it is a, a great honor to be here and to see uh, Jerry. Do not follow where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. I believe that's uh, usually attributed to Emerson. Uh, and this is a card that my parents gave me in junior high school. And it sort of uh, encapsulates my journey uh, in animal law over the last 30 years. Uh, I'd like to thank all the aquarium staff who have made tonight possible. Uh, Jack for his help with the audio and the video and his colleagues. Um, uh, six people who helped me today as I visited the aquarium spontaneously. Joe, Carissa, Ariana, Luke, Carlos, and Gil. I'd like to thank the six of them for making me feel at home. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Sandy Troutwine and Dr. Lance Adams for their help earlier this year. Um, and also Dr. Troutwine for her uh, good company this evening, and um, Jerry Schubel, of course, and then Linda Brown, uh, the person who helped uh, really do everything to uh, make this possible. And most importantly, you for giving your time and making the effort to hear and to share these ideas because of our uh, concern for animals. 
Life is full of beginnings. They are presented every day and in every hour to every person. Most beginnings are small and appear trivial and insignificant, but in reality, they are the most important things in life. James Allen. Well, this tonight is yet another beginning. Um, it's another opportunity to share some of these ideas. And we, we start with animals when we talk about animals. And if it wasn't for this dolphin, Little Bit, who was the last surviving flipper from the TV series in the 1960s, whom I met 30 years ago, um, and it completely transformed my life. I, I would not be here today, so I like to start with her in order to uh, honor her, her memory. Um, just an overview of where we're going to go. We're going to start with some background and a brief, very brief history lesson. We're going to talk about being right. We're going to talk about doing right, uh, the animals, about us, ourselves, others. Uh, the Animal Welfare Act, Excellence Beyond Compliance, uh, working together, and then the principles of constructive engagement. And here's our background and our brief history lesson. And I add this just for context because the American Bar Association Journal cover was from 19, June 1998, which was before the aquarium. Um, and over these last uh, three decades, uh, I've been involved in animal welfare, wildlife conservation work uh, here in the U.S. and, and uh, abroad, uh, primarily with, in the zoological community, but I've worked with a wide range of organizations, uh, mostly focused on the Animal Welfare Act, uh, have worked to uh, get my ideas out there in writing and speaking, uh, as Jerry noted, been very active in animal law uh, teaching and through bar associations. And most importantly, uh, like Michelangelo uh, said, I am still learning. And evenings like tonight uh, provide me an opportunity to uh, learn where I need to get better so that I can be more effective in trying to help both animals and people. Again, here, um, shifting from some of my history to the aquarium, and I really um, love parts of the mission and, and the vision of the aquarium, and in particular, the instilling a sense of wonder, and I hope instilling a sense of wonder does not mean that all of you are wondering what you're still doing listening to me. But uh, be that as it may, respect and stewardship for the Pacific Ocean and its inhabitants and ecosystems and the vision conserving and building natural capital and building social capital, interactions between and among peoples. That, uh, that I really like because when we talk about better serving animals, their interests, their well-being, the environment, uh, oftentimes we don't always think through as much how to deal with each other in the most constructive manner. Heightened consciousness about animals. And this, this is a thumbnail of many of our lifetimes uh, th that are in this room, uh, what has happened uh, over the time that the aquarium has existed or the 30 years that I've been involved. We've seen great cultural change in terms of uh, the animals that have and are still called pets or companion animals are now considered to be family members. And we've, we've been shifting from owners to guardians. And uh, Mark Penn, the strategist who, who coined the term soccer mom in the 90s, in his book Microtrends in 2007, one of the 50 small forces that he said was shaping the future of America was the concept of pet parents. In his sequel, Microtrends Squared, in 2018, I believe it was, he talked about single with pet and how that is, is shaping changes in our society. 
Um, again, this move animals uh, still considered property in all 50 states, though recognized as being sentient beings and perhaps dealt with as living beings, as, as some of us suggest, or as others, uh, legal persons. Uh, science has, has contributed to this, as has the social movement, the animal rights uh, movement and its underlying philosophy. Animal law, the practice of animal law, is what I consider to be a lagging indicator because it seems to be as much as it's enlisted proactively, it still seems to be lagging behind some of the cultural changes and, and some of the, the thinking and philosophizing that still goes on about these issues. Again, we've seen increased attention and sensitivity to animal interest, animal well-being, and zoos and aquariums have helped create a, a greater emotional and personal connection with animals. Certainly that's been true in, in my life. Being right. Now, for those of you who are in the room so I can see you, and for those of you out there remotely, you can do this as well. Uh, I just won't notice it. Um, how, how, many, how many of us love being right? Just, a, just a, not, not everyone. Not everyone. There are some very uh, enlightened souls in the room. But, but most of us love being right. I know I do. Um, and sometimes that's good. Maybe that validates something that is truly right. And maybe, um, maybe there are better ways. Sometimes when we're so concerned about being right or maybe saving face, we find ourselves being very invested, maybe over-invested in what I would consider positions, a point of view or a position on a particular issue. And we focus on that position and we lose sight of what the interests were that we had at heart to begin with, or if we're dealing with animals, uh, what their interest may have been. So there's this distinction between positions and, and underlying interest, and sometimes, and uh, again, people like uh, Lawrence Susskind and the, and the mutual gains approach uh, teach us to try and look behind or beyond those, those hardened positions to the real interest as a way to unlock our ability maybe to resolve some of these uh, difficult issues. Again here, oh, that's a, that's a typo there on the, uh, the slide, the scoreboard. It's not a score BD. Um, but the false, false dichotomy sometimes we have uh, when dealing with animal issues sometimes, free everything. Everything should be free and, and, and unfettered from human intervention. And on the other hand, everything's fine, nothing to see here, move along. And sometimes when we're, when, when we're uh, focused on our uh, positions, uh, we want to put points on the board rather than see real change. Um, I found this online. I, I collect antique quote books. And I went through them, and actually, I found this on, online and thought this was the best uh, summary of, of what we're talking about here tonight. And most of us try to spend so much effort being proven right that we get tired even before we start working towards being better. And, and that era was online, that missing we. Um, instead of looking at logical solution to an issue, the concentration shifts to our point, and in the process, we end up becoming an issue. In other words, by wanting to be right, we become part of what may be less than ideal. So doing right. How many people like doing right? Just about everyone. everyone. OK. Well. Again, we start with the animals, their interests and, and well-being. And the master key when we're talking about uh, zoological organizations like aquariums, like the Aquarium of the Pacific, is animal welfare. 
the, the quality of life, the well-being of the animals entrusted to our care. And there are three, I think, main reasons why that's important. First of all, it's essential to maintain the goodwill of the public, to uphold the public trust. It's congruent with your core mission areas like conservation, research and furtherance of conservation and animal welfare, uh, conservation and humane education. So it gives you the moral authority to do what you do. And it's the right thing to do. And as Martin Luther King Jr. said, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Um, if you're not aware of this, uh, this is from the work of uh, Dr. Lance Miller at the Chicago Zoological Society and Greg Vecino at the San Diego Zoo. The five opportunities to thrive provide uh, a good template for uh, making for the best quality of life for the animals in your care, including diet, self-maintenance, optimal health, species-specific behaviors, opportunities for choice and control. And all of this starts with us right here and, and right now. And that's every day and in every way. We can do it. We can elevate our own consciousness. We can take responsibility. We can get into constructive action and make a difference for animals and people. And, and this, when we're dealing with ourselves or um, Others. Um, I like coming back to this quote from uh, Steve Chandler, who's one of my favorite authors, because basically what it's saying there is everything starts with us, even motivating others. And uh, it, it always occurs through inspiration. It never occurs through someone criticizing you, fixing you, making you wrong, hurting your feelings, and making you defensive. That is not an effective route to change. It will not change another person. Now, I, I like to say when I read this quote, I probably would have been a much better father had I read that when my 20-something-year-old daughters were, were infants. Um, but I, I think it is very much true. And judging from my own experience, having been inspired to, to do this 30 years ago, it, it, it amazes me that in today's world, some of us can be good at inspiring people who agree with us. Others can sometimes inspire people who don't have any particular point of view. And what we really need is to be able to find ways to inspire people who don't necessarily look at things the same way we do. And find inspiration from them ourselves. This, this is something I, I developed in talking to some uh, organizations I had been working with and trying to help foster a, a cultural change. And I call it an enlightened caregiver's creed. And to me, it's, it's one of many tools that I'm sharing tonight that help reorient ourselves. Uh, in terms of how we deal with not only animals, animal issues, animals in our care, people with differing perspectives. But, and, and I'll just go through it uh, briefly. We appreciate and understand that people are concerned about the well-being of animals. We share that concern and constructively act on it daily. We are humbled and grateful for the opportunity to dedicate ourselves to the well-being of the animals in our loving care. While respectful of differences, the one difference we focus on daily is the positive difference we can make in the lives of animals here and everywhere. We thoughtfully consider any reasonable concern, constantly review ongoing developments here and throughout the world so as to continuously improve our service on behalf of animals. We put proactive thinking into good practices as we change and innovate in ways that incorporate the best interest of the animals. That talks about the animal's interests, it talks about their well-being, it talks about the importance of our care, that it's loving care, 
that we're respectful of differences and that we use those differences, we use concerns, we use what we see going on in the world to get better. That is one of the ways in which we shift from being right to doing right. And again, by focusing not on ourselves and our views, but on the animals that we're here to serve. I love this quote from Anthony DeMello. Nothing has changed but my attitude. Everything has changed. Engaging others. And at the beginning of the Excellence Beyond Compliance book, I, I start with the great law of peace, which is respect for all life is the foundation. Animal life, human life, all life. Simple premise about compassion, dignity, and respect. It seems that with regard to animals, most of us would agree, if not all of us, that we would love this to be a world where greater numbers of people, if not everyone, treats greater numbers of animals, if not all animals, with compassion, dignity, and respect. And the, the simple premise is that if we could find it within ourselves to treat each other, even those with which we differ, with compassion, dignity, and respect, in essence, we're modeling how we want them to act towards animals. In a way, it's a sort of golden rule for dealing with people dealing with animals. This is a lot of text. It is from the Pope's encyclical on the environment, and it has been often quoted uh, by animal protection leaders. And why I find this so powerful is it talks about everything being connected in terms of how we treat people, animals, and the environment, and that we have but one heart, and if we don't use that one heart to deal compassionately with each other or with animals, ultimately that will affect people and animals or animals and people. Understanding and leveraging the Animal Welfare Act and Excellence Beyond Compliance. The, the Animal Welfare Act is the one uh, federal, and, and there are some proposals now uh, pending that would extend this and, and generalize this, uh, but it's the one federal animal welfare or anti-cruelty law uh, in, it, with general application, but it is limited as, as we will discuss. And, and there are many challenges, and in the 53 years since the act, or almost 53 years, it'll be 53 years in August, since the act was first enacted, um, there's probably been as much criticism of it as, as, as anything. Uh, some of the challenges with the Animal Welfare Act is that it's, it covers only limited activities and limited species, pretty much mammals and, and, and birds, and it um, deals with exhibition, like the aquarium. Uh, it deals with research facilities, commercial breeders, and, and carriers. Um, minimum standards, engineering, and performance-based engineering standards are, it would be acceptable to have the number of people presently convened in this room, in a room of this size and this height, um, that's an engineering standard. A performance standard would be that an animal shall be maintained so as to uh, uh, preserve its good health, and uh, that's a performance-based standard. My experience with performance-based standards is people who are regulated by them, including many that I've worked with, love performance-based standards when there are no issues because it gives you a lot of flexibility and discretion. Um, critics of the Animal Welfare Act generally don't like performance-based standards. However, when something goes wrong, 
it seems that people who are regulated by performance-based standards don't always have the same appreciation for them because now USDA has greater discretion and flexibility in terms of how it may view a situation. And critics of the Animal Welfare Act seem to have a different sense of performance-based standards when situations come out differently. Um, limited animal welfare uh, maximizing measures, and again, veterinary care, a lot of things in there are good and, and are protective. But there are only three specific things that actually are geared to make an animal's life better. En environmental enrichment for non-human primates, enrichment for marine mammals, and exercise for dogs. Those are the only three that I've come up with over the years. Um, maintaining compliance, uh, such as here uh, at the aquarium, requires constant vigilance, daily efforts, your inspection reports, for facilities like this are online for three years. Uh, as of a couple of years ago, uh, USDA in weighing Privacy Act versus Freedom of Information Act and access issues, um, there, there are some, uh, some facilities, not exhibitors like accredited aquariums like the Aquarium of the Pacific that may not have their inspection reports online. Um, the best that you can do uh, you could have the, the greatest organization and facility in the world, and the best that you could do is no non-compliant items. In other words, there's nothing wrong today, and that's, that's not particularly inspiring. But anything less than that could suggest that there are, there are issues. Um, excellence beyond compliance, as, as Jerry pointed out at the beginning, I'm very uh, proud of my affiliation with the San Diego Zoo Global Academy. Uh, write a monthly column, uh, Getting Better All the Time on Continuous Improvement in Animal Welfare. Um, the giraffe above the clouds is a symbol of raising our consciousness. And, um, and you can see, again, there's a heart in, in beyond because, again, it's, it's all about heart. The, the two things that make the giraffe the, the perfect... Uh, animal to represent this philosophy is as the tallest land mammal known as the sentinel of the savannah, the giraffe can see uh, distant challenges when they're further away, uh, so hopefully can be more proactive. And in addition, because of its uh, tall height, the giraffe has an extraordinarily large heart. This is another shift that we can make. And this is a question that uh, is posed on the back of the book, and that is, what can we, meaning you, me, each of us, all of us, individually, together, do today, which is now the only time in which we can ever really act, the only time in which we live now, to improve the well-being of animals? And it's a question that I've posed before all sorts of people in all sorts of groups. And again, it reorients us to what's important and what we're doing and what we can do, and importantly, what we can do together. Um, excellence beyond compliance, if you look here, you have the Animal Welfare Act with its minimum standards. You have accreditation, as, as the aquarium here has, an overlay of, of sometimes higher standards, uh, self-regulation, and other good practices. And then you have excellence beyond compliance. And excellence beyond compliance is a, is a paradigm shift in a number of ways. One way is that much of the criticism about the Animal Welfare Act is because people treat it as and critics view it as the end point. This is what you're required to do legally. This is the end point. Excellence Beyond Compliance treats the Animal Welfare Act as the starting point, where we begin. And it changes everything. And the two other ways in, in which it shifts the paradigm is it explicitly makes animal welfare the top overriding priority and commits to continuous improvement in that. So it proactively uses the AWA 
uh, to improve all of that, and also what it does, not unlike what the aquarium itself does here, is that it extends those protections and those practices to all animals and all species, not just those that are covered legally under the Animal Welfare Act. It's constructive, positive, voluntary, and as we'll go into, uh, there are a number of other good practices. Again, we're elevating animal welfare. Everyone in an organization and outside an organization can make a difference, and I'll explain that uh, a little bit more in terms of people outside, because if you deal with things like concerns, complaints, and criticism from the outside constructively, as difficult and challenging as it is, it's really an opportunity for you to stretch and grow and find ways to be better, even if it turns out that the original basis of a concern or complaint is unfounded. You can still use that moment as a vehicle for finding ways to get better. And that's, again, how you demonstrate your commitment to the animals in your care. And again, it's a matter of transforming challenges into opportunities. Some, some representative good practices, um, organizationally, um, in terms of some guiding documents and, and in some actual practices. Boards should have animal welfare focus for an organization with animals entrusted to its care or involved with animals, not to have an animal-specific or an animal welfare-specific liaison or, or committee on the board um, probably is, is keeping them from reaching their full potential in terms of the great things that they do for and on behalf of animals. Um, Having an animal welfare officer, an executive level officer reporting directly to the CEO who is an informal means of, of vetting concerns and complaints, but formally is charged with finding ways every day to improve animals' lives. Um, animal welfare leadership group is much broader than an animal welfare committee. Uh, and then some of the guiding documents, your mission statement. And we talked about the Aquarium's mission statement, which is, which is very good and, and talks about this at least implicitly and, uh, and, and, and even uh, explicitly in the sense of respect and stewardship um, and, and conservation. And I would just add expressly, you know, animal welfare, having a policy or a plan. And then dealing with things like USDA inspections, there, there are a million and one ways to, to deal with them where they become something you look forward to, to, to vindicate the good work that you're doing, or to have the agency help you identify areas where you need to improve. Um, and there are ways that you can use uh, different reporting and, and different even challenging situations to, to document and, and make improvements that have dramatic impact on animals and their lives. Uh, again, my experience working with uh, dozens of organizations has been that these tools really work in terms of making animals' lives better, empowering people, and also, and this is maybe a little bit more forward-thinking, if, if people would self-post their inspection reports, some of the controversy over the USDA database um, would, would go away. You'd take responsibility for self-posting, which is not a substitute for a government-sanctioned database, but you self-post, it's probably more accessible to the public, and then you uh, post your, your Im improvements that you're committing to. Again, this drives advances in, in animal welfare. Same thing with license renewals, which have been uh, a controversy under the Animal Welfare Act because they're basically ministerial acts. You send in your check, your application, you do it on time, and you're, you're renewed, whatever the state of affairs is there. And there should be some updated reporting with that. Um, last year, there was controversy over this concept of third-party inspections, perhaps supplanting USDA inspections. And I looked at it very differently, and that was that I looked at it as a supplement, and it shouldn't be a substitute. But that third-party reviews can be helpful, 
and that to the extent third-party reviews are done, if they identify uh, good practices that are done at an organization, those should be shared with the public so that other organizations like that could maybe consider adopting those if they're not already doing them. And likewise, any improvements that are committed to as part of a third-party review process, um, that's something I think that if you disclose it, um, that means you're going to do it, and, and that's a good thing. Um, again, accountability, transparency, and, and upholding the public trust are some of the things that you do. You can do this anywhere. Uh, again, board engagement, animal welfare policy, animal welfare officer, the practice of continuous improvement. Working together to make a difference for animals and people. And, and it's been my experience, and, and maybe this is because of concerted efforts over many years, if not decades, that you can actually find lots of ways to, to work together. It all starts with one conversation between two people. And it can go beyond that. And it can be a conversation between people with philosophically very different points of view where maybe they cannot be reconciled. But I assure you that if you stick with it, there's always some ground that we can find that's shared. Uh, and that ground provides the opportunity to make a difference. Collaboration consensus building. 24 years ago, um, USDA convened the Marine Mammal Negotiated Rulemaking and led to revisions of about 60% of, of the Marine Mammal Regulations, uh, which were finally issued in 2001, and they haven't been updated uh, uh, since. But that's the type of thing uh, that I think could be used uh, more under the Animal Welfare Act, and then uh, things like even mediation on some contentious issues. Um, in closing, just to summarize, it's not about us being right. And, and again, I, I realize that there are things that are right and wrong, and then there's gray area in between. Um, but it's about serving the animals, their interests and well-being. It starts with us, elevating our consciousness, taking responsibility, getting into constructive action. The way we do the things we do, if only I could sing, um, matters greatly. And respectfully in engaging others matters as we have but one heart. Getting better all the time, continuously improving ourselves and our work on behalf of animals, their interest and, and welfare. There are ways we can come together. Um, it's more effective. It conserves and reallocates resources in positive ways and it creates what I consider to be sustainable change rather than manufacturing continuing conflict. Um, we can turn challenges into opportunities and better serve animals. Um, unfortunately, I know that that's true because as a lawyer, one of the things that led me to this part of, of my career and life is getting many of those calls that I hate to receive after some unfortunate event or back-end challenge. Um, and I know that even in those situations, um, we can see the wisdom of what Napoleon Hill said in Think and Grow Rich, that within every adversity is the seed of an equivalent or greater Within, an, excuse me, within every adversity, failure, or heartache is the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Love this Lou Holtz quote. I follow three rules. Do the right thing, do the best you can, and always show people that you care. And with that, thank you very much. So you should remind people who Lou Holtz is. <laughs> Not everybody's a football fan here, probably. Yeah. Great coach. Yes. Want yeah. to tell him from where? Well, he had better <laughs> success at Notre Dame than he did with the New York Jets. Yes. He, well, of course, he probably had better players, too. Well, who, has the, <laughs> who has the first question? We have one back there. Hi. That was amazing. Um, First off, who hires you to do this for animals? 
in, in your, I don't I'm trying to understand how this works. And then also, how'd you, how did your career get involved with Little Bit? How did the dolphin affect you to, to do this? Sure. Um, I'll start with who hires me. Um, generally, it's, it's zoological organizations. And in recent years, it's only accredited zoological organizations. Um, over the years, though, I have represented other organizations, um, including some sanctuaries. Um, and the other, the other question you, was about how I got started, or? How did that dolphin affect you? Yeah, um, well, well, going back to a um, uh, little bit, yeah. Back 30 years ago, I was a burnt-out young lawyer. And as some of you may be thinking, well, he's older now, probably still burnt out, so okay. Um, and I, um, I wound up spending a, a week with Little Bit and a group of cancer patients and cancer survivors. I was the only guy in the group and the only one who wasn't cancer impacted at the time. And I went down there thinking, oh my God, my life is so tough because I work so hard and I'm paid very well to do it. And I met these women who were dealing with their own mortality with strength, courage, and dignity. And I was like, wow, you know, I have to change my attitude. And then I met little bit and fell absolutely in love with her. And I wanted to do whatever I could to be involved. And that led, in short order, to doing uh, a massive amount of pro bono work. That pro bono work eventually uh, led to some reduced fee work, uh, which led to lots of real work. And, um, and my, my wife, Valerie, is here, and she can attest to how, at different times, she has um, subsidized or underwritten my, my practice or my frolics and, and detours. But um, anyone, if, if I can do this, having come about upon this uh, almost accidentally, anyone can do it. Um, Who has the next one? Hello. <laughs> um, so I would call myself an animal commoner. Um, I actually work in the aerospace industry. And how would you advise an animal person who cares a lot from shifting from that being right with your friends and conversations to that doing right? Like, what do you think you would advise to someone that doesn't work in the field to contribute and how that would be make sure I understand it correctly. How, how do you deal with people that aren't in the field that express different views? Yeah, so like myself, I care a lot, but like you're saying in the conversation tonight is how do you shift from kind of being right in conversation to actually taking action and doing that right? Mm -hmm. So for someone who doesn't work in animal law, how would you advise other people to get engaged in that more passionate conversation? Wow. Um, and I know that's not an easy uh, question, but I mean, I'm here for a reason because I care. So <laughs> sure, sure. Well, what what I've done for years when I've entered into conversations, and I've had thousands of them over the years with people that have different views than mine. And if you paid close attention to this talk, you can see my views have evolved over the years. Um, back to your question. And I've always started with a very simple statement to sort of clear the air. And, that, and what's your name? Allison. Allison, like you, I love and respect animals. The difference is that I may manifest it in other ways. And maybe the ways that I manifest it may not be ways that you agree with, or I may not agree with the ways that you do. 
But it may be a matter of understanding. It may be a matter of culture. There may be lots of reasons for that. Let's explore that. And, um, you know, so I, I start from that perspective. And the working title uh, for this talk, which is not altogether new, but the emphasis and focus is, and, and the, the working title I've had for the last five years has been progress without judgment. And I'm not saying that you forget about responsibility and you forget about accountability, but you sort of put judgment in a negative sense to the side. Because as you saw in that Steve Chandler quote, when we get so focused on being right and you're wrong and I've got to prove that you're wrong, what we do is we lose that vast opportunity to make things better. Because Allison, you're here or you're there, and I'm over here. And the natural tendency is to be, you know what, I got enough to deal with in life. I don't, I don't need to hear this. And, and so, ironically, we manufacture opposition or generate energy that goes against what we're trying to do, which is where that concept of the simple premise or the, or the golden rule for dealing with animal issues comes from. To sort of take that, take that energy. Because again, a younger version of myself thought, I'm a lawyer, I have to be right, I have to be clever, I can figure it out. It's somewhere here buried in the black print or in the regulatory history. And God knows I did that and I like to think I did that very well. And then somewhere, probably in the late 90s, it dawned on me that if I want to help protect my clients, the best path to do that is to protect the animals. And, and that's a tricky thing, and as a lawyer, that creates some ethical things to be careful about, professional responsibility type things. But that's how I've given myself room to grow in the way that I was comfortable. And I, I hope that helped a little bit, Allison. I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. Yes? Bring your microphone. Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, in your talk, you said that uh, the AMA was a good place to start, uh, but that there were some potentially new uh, regulations or laws in the pipeline or something. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. There, um, th there are uh, a couple of things that have been kicking around maybe with, uh, you know, uh, some fanfare, and the two things that jump to mind is one is uh, a measure that would, within the Animal Welfare Act itself, require facilities to have uh, contingency plans for dealing with emergencies and disasters. That is currently a regulation that was uh, enacted uh, about three or four years ago, but it's been suspended pending some other regulations because there was concern that it might unduly impact um, very small uh, operators. And the genesis of that was an, a front page article in the Washington Post about a mag magician in Virginia who had one rabbit and was a licensed exhibitor under the Animal Welfare Act. And he said that he would have to write hundreds of pages of contingency plans to uh, satisfy the regulation. And soon thereafter, the regulation was suspended, so now Congress is trying to get the either regulation back in effect or force the agency's hand. The, the other, uh, the, there, there is some dealing with large-scale commercial dog breeders, and there, uh, there is another proposal, perhaps, to make uh, animal cruelty a federal crime. Um, so those are some of the things that are, that are out there. 
and certainly there's always an endless number of things in each state and uh, being litigated. Other questions or comments? Sure. The, the San Diego Zoo Global Academy uh, that I write the, the column for, that is an online training platform uh, that has a broad array of courses that are intended to help elevate the uh, practice and profession of people working in zoological organizations. Um, there is uh, at least one course that um, anyone can um, take, and it's the animal welfare course that they offer, and I would recommend it to everyone. I recommend it to all my, all my clients that they and, and, and all of their team, and not just, not just their animal people, um, but everyone in the organization. Um, so that's what they do. It's a global, worldwide training platform. As a, as a devout and practicing Catholic, I uh, acknowledge your frustration. Um, I still love the power and the beauty of those two paragraphs. And, and I provide both paragraph 91 and 92 because oftentimes people would only quote the one focusing on the animals. And I think when you do that, you forget what caused the challenges for the animals in the first place. You've got to factor people in. Thank you very much. I'm a new member at the aquarium, and I happen to work as an attorney and volunteer at a zoo. So when I saw this lecture, I was like, oh, I have to go. Um, I was wondering if any of your work is with SSPs, the Species Survival Plans, or is it more organizational-based? I, I find the SSPs are great because they cut across organizations and unite us. Sure. Um, a number of the organizations that I've worked with are, are, are very involved or are key contributors to the various SSPs, um, where my work gets me more involved in the SSP is when uh, the, the SSP or the, uh, the taxon advisory groups, the TAGs, are sometimes I look at their guidance to um, help evaluate a situation. And sometimes in doing that, I maybe see opportunities that could be um, communicated back to the SSP or the TAG, hey, maybe this is a gap. So that, you know, so yes, lots of people I work with are, are players and contributors. Uh, I'm probably more involved in an indirect way. Any other? Questions or comments? Boy, you've got a lot of them. case that you were on that you would like to share with us that um, would in inspire us to go inspire others? Oh, boy. Just pick one. Um, wow. Um, one of the things that's difficult for me is, as a lawyer, um, I try not to kiss and tell. And, and that means when I've been involved in a situation and things work out or things get better, it's not important that I get the credit. It's the people who are doing the work. I'm just an instrument for helping them to do that. Um, I was actually a number of years ago approached um, about doing uh, an animal law or, or having a role in an animal law reality show. And um, I was very flattered and I thought about it for 24 hours and then I declined. And the reason was that I could just picture this. Episode one, 
Jim Giswaldi divulges client confidences and secrets. <laughs> Episode two, Jim Giswaldi is disbarred. <laughs> Episode three, where is Jim Giswaldi? <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, I think afterwards I, I, I can talk about one heartbreaking situation maybe that, that turned out better. All right, we yep. ask him a hard one. Oh, well, I don't know it's hard. I, I just want to say that uh, great talk, and uh, as you know, I admire your work so much, and it's really inspirational to hear this. You know, we're in Los Angeles uh, where we have the entertainment industry, and I can tell you, I live in Malibu, so my kids go to school with some reality TV show stars. I think, I think the ratings would be really good, especially the disbarring. Uh, <laughs> You might, you might want to think about it. Um, so my question is that you, when you're talking about people, you have this slide up where some people say, free all the animals. And, yep. uh, with that group, you probably have at least two subsets, people who are more pragmatic, who would like to free every animal, but understand that um, a step in the right direction is a positive. Mm -hmm. or, you know, treating the animals is something that they would applaud even if they don't get all the way they want to get. You have also people who call themselves abolitionists as you well know, the people would say uh, nothing short of letting all the animals free of human control of any kind is, uh, is okay. How do you interact with, with an abolitionist? It seems like that's, that might be more challenging, but I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that. Wow, that, that's a great question. And um, I, as you know, I interact with everyone. And I have great respect for people um, even if their view, and sometimes because their view is hard and fast, because they're trying to be true to that. And I think the response that, that I have in situations like that is implicitly addressed in the closing chapter and the closing page of the book. And in there, I talk about um, uh, Lauren Isley's old, uh, I think it was an essay, The Star Thrower, and we know it as the starfish story about the two people walking along the beach and one, one picking up every stranded starfish and throwing it back in. And the, the friend says, why are you doing that? You can't save all the starfish along this beach. And the reply is, well, for this animal and for everyone I am able to send back, it makes all the difference in the world. So in a conversation like that, to me, if between now and whatever ideal outcome they see, there's still a transition. And if we ignore that, then is that a matter of okay, this ideal endpoint that they see, maybe that's the right one. But even if it is, does that justify neglecting all we can do to make the animals' lives better now? And that's, I think, where I come from. Jim, I think that's a good note to end on. And, and it's a good, uh, I, I think, if you want to read oh, this book, yeah. we have some copies for sale. A lot of gems in that book. I, I, some of it's nuts and bolts, and it was, it was designed that way to get people to use it, uh, but it's really meant to be transformative. Um, and if you want, uh, if, if you get a book, or even if you, you don't, I have copies of the, um, what was I going to say, uh, the Enlightened Caregiver's Creed, and and I think I, maybe I glossed over the slide or somehow it, it dropped out. The principles of constructive engagement, which, which quickly are basically that when you have a challenge, like even this question you just asked, when you have a challenge, there are two things you do. You think, how can I use this challenge to learn more, to grow, to become better, and to better serve animals and their interests? And be grateful for that, try to collaborate, and just keep bringing it back to that. So I, ha I have that for you as well, and I thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Great talk. Very good. Great having you here.